Hey, podcast family, I hope you're doing well. You know what I love about our Clinical Pearls family and just the OBGYN community in general? That we can just reach out to each other and support each other when we've got a question or just a good idea for a podcast. So in this podcast, we're going to use the recommendation of one of our podcast listeners and one of our Facebook friends. So Dr. Eskar Zaga, you raised a great question and had a great recommendation for a podcast, which was the use of Lasix for postpartum preeclampsia management. Is that an issue or are we worried about renal effects with a loop diuretic? Well, there's data on that. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about the use of Lasix in the postpartum management of preeclampsia. Dr. Escarzaga, thanks for being part of our Facebook family. And now let's get on to the show. One of the concerns about using Lasix in preeclampsia had to do with the issue of intravascular volume depletion while the excess fluid is stored in the third space. So the fear was that somehow the issues of long-term use and high-dose use of Lasix that happens in the internal medicine population would be relevant to the postpartum patient. In other words, some of the initial fears or concerns about using Lasix is that it would lead to volume volume depletion or severe electrolyte imbalances or a contraction alkalosis or in worst case actually potentiate renal failure or renal injury. But remember that the postpartum preeclamptic patient has very unique physiology because after the first about 24 hours, well, within the first 24, but really up to 72 hours, that excess third-spaced fluid begins to mobilize as an autotransfusion back into the intravascular space. So the short of it is that the issue of potential volume depletion with the use of Lasix in the postpartum period for this condition is actually not that risky. And there's actually data that favors its use in the appropriate setting. Now, there's two caveats here. We're talking about short-term use, and some studies have defined that as the first 24 hours alone or no more than five days of oral therapy. We're going to get into all of this in just a minute, but I just wanted to lay down the groundwork that the initial fears of using the loop diuretic like Lasix in the postpartum period is that it would augment potential injury. But remember, a lot of that data, again, is for older populations or internal medicine patients with a lot more uh, chronic morbidities. Not the case here in the postpartum patient. So I just wanted to lay that groundwork before we actually get into the data. Now, having said that, let's take a look at the studies and the pharmacology of Lasix a little bit more in detail. Hypertension in the postpartum period is a common phenomenon and is often a cause for concern. Following delivery, fluid that has been sequestered in the extravascular space begins to mobilize, producing this large autoinfusion of fluid from the extravascular to the intravascular compartment. As a result of this fluid mobilization, there is an increase in central venous pressure and pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, which might favor the development of pulmonary edema. So diuretics logically might be a better choice as an antihypertensive medication in these scenarios. It is reasonable to expect that fluid restriction in the postpartum period coupled with the administration of a diuretic can be considered appropriate in these circumstances. 
risks of low-dose diuretic therapy are minimal and minimized probably by the addition of a modest daily oral potassium supplement that should be considered if the use of a loop diuretic is to be done greater than 48 hours. Now, as a medication choice, furosemide use instead of hydrochlorothiazide is favored primarily because it has not been associated with neonatal thrombocytopenia in breastfeeding infants, although it does cross into breast milk and in some studies has been known to decrease milk production. So remember that as a clinical pearl. Another clinical pearl is to remember that, as with other diuretics, prolonged treatment with Lasix may lead to a transitory increase in blood creatinine and uric acid levels, which may confuse the picture if you're using that to see if her kidney function is worsening. Now remember, this is temporary and usually resolves quickly. The pharmacology of furosemide and observational data suggest that patients with mild acute kidney injury will respond to Lasix better than patients with severe acute kidney injury. Now, if furosemide is used carefully, it may still have a clinical role even in patients that have mild acute kidney injury. Furosemide is a sulfonamide, so remember that in patients that have a sulfa allergy. The dosage of IV Lasix is usually half the oral dose as the bioavailability of oral dose is about 50%. Here's another clinical pearl. In patients with hypoproteinemia, in other words, associations with nephrotic syndrome, the effect of Lasix may be weakened and there is a potential for ototoxicity. That potential is potentiated in true nephrotic syndrome, but usually this issue of ototoxicity is reversible and is only with very high and sustained dosages. Remember, we're talking about using this for a short period of time, so this issue of ototoxicity, which has to be recognized, is more theoretical in our patients. Now, of note, for patients that are on MAG, Lasix may lower serum levels of calcium and magnesium. So remember to check serum levels of those two, especially if they're on MAG sulfate in the postpartum period. And as another pearl, Lasix may increase that ototoxic potential of aminoglycoside antibiotics, especially in the presence of impaired renal function. So if your postpartum patient is on an aminoglycoside, be careful with Lasix. Now remember, we can still give it. You just should give it for the shortest period of time and again at the lowest dose that's necessary. Okay, that's enough of the pharmacology recap because I think we left that back in medical school. But it's important to remember, having said that, I want to highlight two studies, one from 2017 and the one from the DFW area. And for our friends who aren't in Texas, that's the Dallas-Fort Worth area because in 2020, new data was presented out of the SFM meeting in the DFW area regarding the use of Lasix in the postpartum period for preeclampsia. In 2017, Vina et al. published Furosemide in the Postpartum Management of Severe Preeclampsia, a Randomized Controlled Trial. 
in this study, a total of 108 antenatal women diagnosed with having severe preeclampsia with two blood pressure recordings of greater than or equal to 150 over 100 in the postpartum period within the first 24 hours were enrolled in the study. Now I know, remember, this is not what ACOG uses. ACOG uses as a severe blood pressure cutoff greater than 160 over 110. But these authors used 150 over 100, so I just wanted to clarify that. These patients were randomly divided into two groups. Group A had furosemide 20 milligrams daily and nifedipine, and group B had nifedipine alone. The main outcome measures studied were reduction in systolic, diastolic, and mean arterial blood pressures, requirement of additional antihypertensive drugs to control blood pressure, duration of hospital stay, and antihypertensive requirement at discharge. Both groups were comparable for distribution of age and parity and presence of eminent symptoms of preeclampsia. There was no significant difference in mean systolic, diastolic, and mean arterial pressures between both groups at admission. The mean gestational age at delivery was about 36 weeks in both groups. Now here's the findings that we're interested in. Requirement of additional antihypertensives was significantly higher in women in group B. Remember, that's a group without Lasix, occurring in about 26% compared to 8% in the group with Lasix. That p-value was 0.017. The duration of hospital and postpartum stay and the use of antihypertensive at discharge were similar though in both groups. So the authors concluded that the use of a short course of Lasix along with nifedipine significantly reduced the need of additional antihypertensives in severe preeclamptic women with postpartum hypertension when compared to women who received nifedipine alone. Okay, now for those of you that are academicians, I know that there's a 2005 study that looked at Lasix in the postpartum period for preeclampsia as well. However, I didn't want to include that into this podcast because 2015 is 15 years ago, and I felt that was just too long to include that in here. But the short of that study that was in obstetrics and gynecology is that Lasix was deemed safe and it worked as well. But again, even though that data did show the effect of Lasix back in 2005, being 15 years old, I just didn't want to include that because I wanted to focus on these two more recent studies. Now, I know what you're thinking. That 2017 study showed that Lasix worked, but these women were also on nifedipine, and that's dual therapy. But what about single agent therapy? What about Lasix by itself? Well, information regarding single use of Lasix in the postpartum period for preeclampsia actually comes more recently. That came from February 2020 from the annual meeting of Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine in the DFW area. According to this new data, fewer women with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy who were randomized to receive Lasix after delivery experienced consistently elevated blood pressures compared with women who received placebo. Compared to 14% of patients randomized to placebo, only 6% of patients randomized to Lasix experienced persistently elevated blood pressures at 7 days after delivery. The data from the study came from the University of Pennsylvania from the Perelman School of Medicine in Philly.
This trial examined women with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, including gestational hypertension, who were diagnosed within the first day postpartum after delivery, of course, at 20 weeks of pregnancy or higher. They received either five days of 20 milligrams of oral Lasix or placebo, and they were sent home with any remaining pills. Blood pressure measurements were collected up to 14 days postpartum, including inpatient and outpatient blood pressure monitoring through a text-based blood pressure program that gave women a blood pressure cuff on discharge and instructed them to measure their blood pressure twice a day. The primary outcome was persistently elevated blood pressures at 7 days postpartum, defined as 48 hours of blood pressure that was still greater than or equal to 140 over 90 millimeters of mercury, as well as the number of days required for blood pressure resolution. Women in the Lasix group had a 40% reduction in the need for additional antihypertensive medication compared to placebo, although researchers found no difference in hypertension-related readmissions or ER visits. So the authors concluded that their results indicated that 13 women would need to be treated with Lasix to prevent one woman from having persistent postpartum hypertension. And that is not a bad number needed to treat. All right, podcast family, before we wrap this up, we have to give an important disclosure. And that's that even though there's randomized clinical trial evidence, level one evidence, that the short-term use of Lasix in the postpartum period for preeclampsia is safe and effective, we got to remember that there's just not a lot of RCTs. There's just not a lot of data, but it is reassuring and expert opinion does favor the use of short-term use of Lasix to help mobilize that excess fluid and help prevent blood pressure spikes when that autotransfusion takes effect. Now, I've got to be honest, I am a fan of Lasix in the postpartum period for these patients because I feel that it just gets that fluid off quicker and helps prevent the need for additional antihypertensive medication. So I'm a fan of it. It does work. There is evidence, but we need more RCTs to establish that as part of the baseline first line treatment in these patients. So I hope that helps. And thanks for your recommendation for these podcasts. We listen to that. We go right to work, take a look at the data, put the research together, and then transcribe that for a podcast. So guys, have a great rest of the week, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.